This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 52 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On the track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And RV life has been treating you well, is it? It's amazing what people discover, isn't it? By just being there. I was struck early on in this process of how much our lives revolve around our house. Does that make sense? Or is it just, is it just, you know, handicap us? That's the voice of my guest this week, Kevin Sabowski. He's the owner and founder of Fastroot LLC. I first met Kevin through Lunch Club. And to say it was difficult to get us together was an understatement. We eventually did. And I had the real pleasure of interviewing him just after Christmas of 2021. What I really enjoyed about interviewing Kevin was he dispelled some of the myths surrounding the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS. If you're a solopreneur in a small and medium-sized business, you need to listen to Kevin to see how you can unlock your growth and true potential. Kevin truly believes to live life, you must pursue the passion. My first question for Kevin was, how would you describe yourself if somebody met you in the street? How would I describe myself? You, you know, I mean, I, uh, that's a great question because so much of our culture is organized around our job. And I, and I was challenged years ago to like stop answering that question with what I do for a living. And so I'm trying to figure out what, what you're getting at. But, I, you know, I'm a father. I'm a, you know, I, I'm a traveler right now. I'm a seeker. In business, you know, I, I obsess, I'm fascinated about entrepreneurship, leadership, and innovation. So I'm a student, I'm a practitioner, you know, I, I I'm a I'm a geek. I just love I like weird stuff. I'm a um I'm a pioneer, sort of when when people talk about something I've never heard before, I'm like, oh, tell me more about that. And so I've accumulated some of the most important knowledge that we can find is the stuff that surprises us. Right. It's like, and so oh yeah, it's the only way to get out of your blind spots. Right. And so I've just learned to be, to pay very much attention to a novelty. And so when somebody says something that's different, I'm like, what is that? You know, you're, you're my long lost brother by the sounds of right? things. I mean, yeah. you, you, you kind of tick all those boxes, you know, traveler, you know, still interested novelty. I love it. Um, actually I, I, something as hot to trot as I call it, like the hot potato is that you are a traveler. You, you have been roaming. And, um, I wanted to get to that first of all, cause I think that will set everything up quite nicely for the listeners to get a flavor of what you're doing with your life at the moment and how much you've changed it recently. So tell us all about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, November 19th of 2020, I left Michigan in an RV and I've been living in an RV since then. And, it, uh, you know, I've always wanted to travel my whole life. I've lived in Michigan 58 years. I always wanted to get out, but I just, you know, everything just sort of fell into place to stay in Michigan. And, and you know, I had this notion that I couldn't leave. It's like, well, that's just made up, right? And so... Uh, yeah, everything just fell into place where all of the reasons why I wouldn't do it went away. 
And then it, you're just sort of staring at that. Okay, well, I guess you've been saying you want to do that your whole life. You know, why don't you? And I'm moving my business or doing virtual and digital marketing so that I can be location independent. And so, okay, so if, if that's what you say you want, you better figure out whether you actually like that or not. And at the time, Michigan was going into pandemic lockdown in the winter, which sounds like a really difficult time for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah, it was like, you know, get out and see the world, I guess. Yeah. And it's a dream of a lot of people for sure, isn't it? But um, let's move that off to one side because I'd love to delve into that later on. But I really want to get focused on your business and really what you kind of formed your business around. So essentially, what are the core parts of your business and how can you help people? Well, so I have two businesses. So I have one business that I I, I work with uh, companies, about 10 to 250 people. The key thing about those companies is that they have a leadership team. So the principal is hired managers. And with them, I'm an EOS implementer. Where I've been spending more of my time over the last year and a half is in my company Fastest Route which is focused on those companies that are one to 10. They don't have any managers. I call them solopreneurs. I don't know if there's a dictionary definition for that, but I think a lot of times, you know, when you're on your own, you're spending all of your time in your head. I have a particular place in my heart for the the loneliness and the challenge of, of that. I've been accumulating methods and insights to make that easier. So a lot of those people are doing okay, but they're not thriving. I'm interested in the people that are up to something, they have a big ambition and they want to do more. You know, they're pushing forward, but somehow they're not moving forward. And so, you know, my passion, my obsession right now is helping those people. And and a lot of what they need is other people to talk to and invent with. I always tell people that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, and I know you, it's like, these guys are smart. They're people that got a lot of great ideas in there. You know what I mean? It's like, but their challenges, they've also got a lot of crazy ideas in there. We all do, right? We all have like- We do, we do. (laughs) We have crazy ideas. And sometimes you don't know which is which. And so that's the real challenge that, that when you don't have a leadership team, that's really missing. And so, you know, that's the most joy I get when I can help one of those people in that situation see their way through, see their way to the success that they've dreamed of, you know. You know, I think you were on the money there. I think the word that came right through for solopreneurs is the loneliness, isn't it? It's being on your own because you have no way of bouncing ideas off of somebody unless, you know, it's maybe your wife or your partner or something like that. But really, that's not enough, is it? You need somebody who's in the trench with you, don't you? Yeah, because, you know, that's the thing. Everybody wants to tell you what to do, right? And they, but and they're, most people aren't qualified. They don't know it. They're being nice, but they don't realize what it's like. I remember the first time I went into business, it was like the first day I was like, oh, wow, this is hard. It was like when I sat in the seat, you know, it didn't before that, it was like, oh, I've got this figured out. Really, nobody else gets it. You know, so I've been a consultant, I've been a coach, one-on-one coach, I've been, and and I put together peer groups as well. So peer group support groups. And I, you know, I've done a lot of research over the years about what really helps, what helps entrepreneurs. And because, you know, there's a huge global conspiracy to help entrepreneurs. The reality is most of that help doesn't make a difference. And one of the things all the studies show is peer conversations, 
make a difference. Correct. And so, you know, I love putting people together. I can, I can chart the path. I can kind of tell, you know, cause a lot of what the solopreneurs have to do is define their business better. They're still early enough. They're not really sure. And they're afraid typically to be too specific, even though that's the most potent thing for them to do, right? To dial in their dream customer who'd be more specific, smaller niche, you know, be more specific about the things that you're going to do, be more specific and tight. Uh, And they just haven't figured it out. So that's an invention process. And I just see people struggling with that. I struggle with it. You know, you struggle with it. We all, and you know, we stand in front of people, do our elevator pitch and act like we, you know, we've got this figured and we know what we're talking about. Very true. Yeah. Say today, I don't know. And so, you know, when it's an invention process, it's difficult. And that's when a lot of heads together make a big difference. And so I can chart the path. I can share distinctions and ways of thinking about it. But ultimately, we have to apply it to their business. And that's a creative process. And so with a group of people, it becomes really powerful. And and I liked what you just said there. That's a creative process. Because at the end of the day, you know, so much of business has been shifted from the creatives to being the analytics, you know, the, the figures and, you know, the KPIs and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But to, to get there... You have to have the creatives. You've got to. You've got to have the ideas, haven't you? You've got the stimulation and all have you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not, and I'm, I have a technical background. I'm pretty 50-50 right brain, left brain, but I, I got an engineering degree. And, you know, as I'm, I'm doing digital marketing, social media, and I'm doing Facebook ads, and I just, I, and there's a part of me that just adores the analytics of that. And it's like, and to me, it was like, okay. And I was, as I was going down this path, it's like, okay, this is going to save me, right? This is going to really do it. And I got to the point where I figured all the technology out and I was getting some decent results from the ads, but I had this realization that I, like all of my customers, need to be more clear about what I'm doing. I was faced with this reality that my marketing to work better, I need to do what I'm, you know, help my clients with. And that's get more specific about who do I serve? You know, what value do I bring? And so I had to stop. You can't just do that overnight. You can't just say, okay, answer it. It takes a while. You know, actually, again, you've summed up so many great things there is it was the loneliness, you know, the kind of planning and then actually just talking to a peer group, you know, just discussing some ideas, your worries, you know, your, you know, where are you going to go? What, what are you going to do? Because I think when you have a good peer group to discuss, a network of people, it really takes a lot of pressure off you because you realize they've been in the same boat. They've had the similar experiences, isn't it? And that's that shared experience is so important, isn't it? Well, and that's the thing, you know, so one, one of the things that I do with peer groups is you tell people, it's like, you don't really, you don't tell an entrepreneur what they should do. Or you don't tell them, here's the answer, because we're not like, we don't like that, right? We just don't like that. But if you tell me you did something, and then you can share with me the result of that, I eat that up, right? So we love that. So tell me what you did and what happened. What was your situation? What did you do and what's happened? Because that's what we're all, we're all pragmatic that way. You know, it's like, yeah, cool theory and all, but but really, when, when the rubber hits the road, we gotta, we have to, you know, make it work. Now, you said something really interesting, and I picked up on the the acronym, the EOS system. So tell us a little bit, for people that don't understand the EOS system, how can that help? Well, first of all, what is it? You know, what does it help you do? 
And how does it help you apply things in a small business of one to 10 people? I want to give you a longer answer to that, sort of my, my history. So when I started my IT business, my big goal was I wanted to be a great CEO because I'd met somebody that does the, the work that I do now. And I'm like, I'd love to do that. That I, you know, and at my twenties, I saw that's what I want to do. I want to fly at 30,000 feet, help people with strategy and help entrepreneurs. And I knew I had to learn it. Right. And so my goal was to become a great CEO. And so I studied in California with an organization that focused on entrepreneurship, innovation, and leadership, and real fundamental stuff about biology, neurology, philosophy, linguistics, because business is all about human beings. And so if you want to be a professional, then you have to study the material, the fundamentals of the material that you work with. And we work with humans, and we don't know that to a certain degree. And so I, this stuff mattered so much to me. It was, uh, it was so powerful in the running of my business. It really turned it out. I mean, it was great success in my business. I just, turns out, I just didn't love my market, what we were doing. So grew it to 30 people and then and changed. And I wanted to bring the stuff that I knew to other people, these fundamental distinctions. And what they said to me over and over again is they said, Kevin, that's awesome. You're smart. That's a good idea. My hair's on fire. I got stuff to do. So you need to tell me what to do today or else I can't, I don't have time for this. And so what I found was a lot of those people weren't doing the fundamental blocking and tackling of business. They didn't put systems in place. And so I went out looking for what to do for them. I tried a couple of systems and most systems are designed for how we wish people were rather than how they really are. Oh, you say that so well. And so when I came across the book Traction that describes the entrepreneurial operating system, it was like, he gets it. It's like he studied the same stuff or something. I don't know, but I can explain all of the stuff in that model and that system with fundamentals of human behavior. And I think of it as a leadership system. It's like, what's that minimal set of things that you have to do? Even if internally you don't know how to be a great leader, if you just do these things, you will behave like a great leader. And so what I found was, you know, what I was doing with the things that I was learning is putting a real fine point on things. I was interested in how do you be extraordinary? How do you be exceptional? How do you have, I'm always interested in the premium offer. How do you do the best? How do you be the best in the marketplace? And most companies have a lot of work to do before they need to worry about being the best. And to me, EOS is that system. It's like it gets you to the point where you're doing all the pragmatic stuff. You know, if you're if you implement EOS, you know you're doing the space, this the block standard blocking and tackling, and then you can be brilliant. And when you're brilliant and you say move somewhere, you can get the company to move. And so, you know, what I found is now there's that that those insights that I learned and ways of thinking about business and how to how to design business, it's still something that's really required by solopreneurs. You know, those companies that are ready for EOS because they've got people problems, they've sort of resolved a lot of these fundamentals that the solopreneurs don't. So with that group, I, I will help them implement pieces of EOS, but it's really, it's really more. Uh, fundamental design. There's certain assumptions. And so the EOS is really more for those companies that have a leadership team. For the solopreneurs, I'm, I'm using pieces of that, but really a lot of the other distinctions. And, and I'm spending more time with them as a consultant, advisor, teacher. I love the detailed answer because that's really what you want. We want people to get their teeth into the nitty gritty, the meaty part of the bone, right? <laughs> um, because EOS, I mean, I've been involved in EOS and I know we had this conversation before. 
And, you know, what we're really saying, and I think you really clarified it great there, it's not for everybody, right? You know, it applies to certain types of companies with a leadership team, um, but you can take bits out of it. But um, it, what's, the, what's the kind of fall down on EOS? If you try to implement it in the wrong way, what can be some of the things that can trip you up and, and, and then it doesn't work? Have you seen that as well? I have this funny reaction. With, I've talked to people and they think it's a very sort of mechanical system. And to me, you know, I it's all about heart and soul. You know, all, business is about heart and soul. It's like, who do you love? Who do you want to serve? What what fills you with joy? What Where are you in flow? You know, if you can identify all that stuff, magical things happen in business. You know, the kind of productivity, the kind of, and I found that in my business. I had 30 people and they were so dedicated. And they were, you know, it's like, if you want people to do well in your business, you know, figure out what their concerns are, help them achieve their ambitions and then give them a purpose. And so EOS, one of the key things in the, is in the vision traction organizer is a tool to define the business and purpose, core focus, purpose, cause, and passion. And to me, you know, I think when I work with clients, that's a big part. And it's like, you know, we work on that because if that's not quite right, nothing else is going to flow, you know? Oh yeah. Totally. And we're not really good at it. We're not really good at digging in. And so this is sort of the skill that I've developed being able to be with someone. And, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes people outside of you see you better than you see yourself. Right. So people will be talking about what matters to them in the business. And then I'll talk to them and I'm like, I don't think that you care about that. <laughs> and, and then we'll be talking and I'll see them light up and I'll say, now that let's talk about that. Let's talk about that little piece. So I can guide them and find, you know, blow a little oxygen on this little tiny spark in their heart because we're all good soldiers just doing what we're supposed to, you know. And so, so much about EOS is the narrative about what we're going to produce in the world and sharing that with everybody. Because if you can get everybody in the company, you know, part of it, part of EOS is getting crystal clear about the kind of people to have in your company. So we focus on core values. What do you stand for? Because if you can get everybody to share the core, same core values, then you're all going to sort of automatically work in the same direction. And then if you're really good about defining your purpose in such a way that people go like, sweet, that's awesome. If you can do that, and then, and then people that come in, if everybody's got that, man, just everybody's making all the little micro decisions correctly. They're internally, people talk about being motivated and, and motivated to me comes is an external force on you. And it's an emotional excitation. I'm more interested in mobilization. Mobilization comes from inside, right? So if you've got all of the people in your company doing the work because God, they want to see this turn out because it's just so exciting. It's just, you know, it's stunning, the differences. Yeah. And, and that's a really interesting perspective. You've got that mobilization because that is the seed, isn't it? That's the seed yeah. to grow the oak tree, isn't it? Well, you know, I think a lot of this comes from that. I'm, I'm you know, I, I think most entrepreneurs are basically lazy people. And what that turns out is like, we will work so hard for long periods of time so that we don't have to work much. It's a very funny phenomenon, right? What I've come to find is if you don't lead well, you have to manage a lot and you have to deal with a lot of breakdowns. And so when I work, when I see companies where the, the, the management 
is deep down in the, you know, the functional tactics of the business. And when there's a breakdown in the business and those guys have to fly in, they're not leading well. Because if you lead well, all of those people are empowered. You know, they, they know it well enough. They're empowered. They're skilled. They just, they solve those problems themselves. And so to me, if you do a great job of leadership, it's just way <laughs> easier, you know? So I'd much rather be really good at, at, uh, at leadership than, a, you know, really hard worker. You, you, I mean, you really sum this up so well because, you know, when we actually look at a business, there's some really straightforward things, okay? Uh, there's culture. You talked about love and passion, and there are motive things, right? The thing about those is that um, if you allow love and passion to come through, even though it might be embarrassing sometimes because people are revealing their hearts and their soul and everything, but if you allow them a really safe place to do that and there's no criticism of that, in other words, that's contributing to the whole, isn't it? That's yeah. getting us on the bandwagon and that's giving us the power to get along those rails. Then then people gain a certain amount of confidence that yeah. they can be themselves. Is that yeah. is that it? Is that what it's all about? It's authenticity. And I remember I, I had, I, I worked at Sun Microsystems in my twenties and I had a boss, he says, I want to be more Bill. And I'm like, that was interesting, you know, be more Bill. And so it's like, it started this process of, you know, authentic, being authentic. And so I was, this is a lifelong pursuit. And this is one of the reasons that I didn't like my IT company because all I was working with big companies and in big companies, we are all trained to have a facade. We are not people, we are roles. And so when I'm, what I would sit across, I'm in this like deep thing about being as me as I can be. What does that mean? You know, flaws and all. And then I'm sitting across the table. I'm like, I want to know about what's up with this person, you know, but they, there's no access, right? They won't give it to you. I remember I heard um, the superintendent of schools for New York City. I was at a conference and he was one of the panelists and, and he talked about the biggest thing that he did to change his culture was to pursue a strategy of radical vulnerability. Oh, yeah. And he just said, you know what I mean? Cause we all have these like thoughts in our heads. Like, should I say that? Should I say, and when we're protecting ourselves, it's really diminishing our effectiveness together. And, you know, I mean, we've all had this experience, right? We all think, gosh, if I say that, then I'm going to be stupid. I'm going to be, you know, they're going to like, come after me. But the reality is when you do that, most everybody else goes like, oh, dude, no, you know, no, no problem. And so I've come to find that, you know, if I can be the one to be vulnerable and just to share the truth of our humanity, that it gives other people permission to do that. And if we all do that together, then, you know, that it, it comes together. I started, I, I coached, I was consulting with big companies and then I, I coached my kids' soccer team. And there's this funny experience that I had, which was like, you know, I would tell them what to do. And then, so go do that. I said, what? Is, I don't know what you're doing. You know, there. and then I was telling them again. And then they said, you didn't tell me that. I said, yes, I did. So they just like, they're just so authentic. They're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you, you know, tell me again, tell me again, tell me again. And I realized, I realized that we're the same way, right? I mean, we have to hear this stuff over and over again. We had to have to hear something seven times, but the kids, they're, they're authentic that way. And so I just like resolved, you know, and if we can be that way with one another, then it's just so much more productive. And, and that's a utopia. But the reality of life is that you must go into so many companies, small ones, solopreneurs, and you must see similar, similar issues with each of those companies. So tell me about your, you know, your, your, 
your basket case, your worst case scenario, and it went off the rails. And also I'll, I'll flip the coin over and you can tell me about your best and most successful uh, case that you had. I was working with this client and, and they decided that they had 14 people on their leadership team and they needed to bring 14 people. And so it's this consensus led organization, right? We're going to get everybody and man, oh man. So at the end of, at the end of our sessions, we rate the session and I do pretty well with these things. And so, but it did not go well. It did not go well in so many different ways. You know, the reality, it, it just doesn't, a consensus-led organization just doesn't work. What, what a consensus-led organization says is, we do not have roles, everybody's responsible for everything, and it's very inefficient. And if I'm responsible for everything, I'm not probably not very good at it. And so you, we need to specify, we need to narrow our responsibilities. And so you need to have smaller and smaller numbers of people that just have to make the decisions. My advisors told, you would tell me not to do that, you know, tell them, no, you can't have that many people there. You know, I wanted the business basically. And uh, fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And man, yeah, I, we, I got some four out of 10, you know, <laughs> I think I averaged like a six out of 10, which, you know, the worst I'd ever gotten was like, Eight. It's a tough environment to be in because sometimes you do get it wrong. You know, the, 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 we're yeah. human at the end of the day and you're learning as you're going along. Yeah. Sometimes you figure out the organization, you think, oh yeah, best laid plans. And then it just goes to hell in a hand car. It really does. I want to give you a different example though, because I had another company that, that went off the rails for, for a different reason. And, um, and it was this subject of vulnerability because the CEO had to like be right and had to be, you know, define things. And I wasn't letting them get away with it. Good. I said, I want to hear what they have to say. I understand you might have, but you know, if you don't let the leaders on the leadership team work things out, they're never going to have good answers to it. So you need to count on them. You need to defer to them and let them stew in it. And so I did that enough that he ended up firing me. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm good with that. But I mean, it's sad. You're like having these conversations with everybody around the room because, you know, in this role, you know, you, you're you're looking at everybody, right? So you see this guy and he's got this puffed up version of himself. And then you see the other guys kind of going sheep, very sheepishly, like, you know, embarrassed. But the, 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 to be real, and, and you are real about this, there's some cultures you can't fix. They're so down that line, aren't they? That fundamentally yeah. you'd have to shut the company. Yeah. You'd have to fire everybody and then rehire again. And that that's, that's yeah, that happens. It's always at the top, right? I mean, if you, you fire the top, this is something I see every time when I'm working with those bigger companies, I'll talk to the, the CEO and I'll say, what's going on? And he was just like, you know, they just don't do, you know, they're just not very good. They just don't. And then I'll go talk to the, the, the managers and they say, he, he just holds everything close to the vest. He doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us an opportunity. He's just, you know, and he's, and he changes his direction all the time. And so you got this thing going on at some level, they're, they're both right. You know, the person leading the company typically does have insights that those guys don't have. And so they they are good at some stuff. But if they don't get out of their way, if they don't let go of the vine, as we say in EOS, and, and actually delegate, then they can never get good at it. And so it's always the CEO. It's always the fire the CEO. <laughs> and what it comes down to is there's a certain sort of ego you know, some people love being the boss. Oh yeah, of course. You know, there's nothing I can do about that. You know, the people that I can work with really want to have an autonomous leadership team. 
you know, and, and that was how I was. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to be here 80 hours a week. I don't, I want you guys to take it. And I want, and, and I get greater joy out of being a part of creating that environment where those people succeed. Oh, oh, fundamentally. And I totally agree. Totally agree. But okay, let's be fair to you then. Tell us about your best success story where you really hit it just right at the field. So I, I worked, did some work for a, a company, uh, a plumbing company, which is not a, a typical sort of client in, in these sorts of things. And so it's a big enough where they really were running into, into trouble. And when I started the integrator, the, the COO was really secretly like trying to figure out where he's going to get his next job because he was like, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. And over the period of two years, because they had a visionary that's just really in their face and just really just didn't play well. And, you know, one of the things that I can do in those environments is I can get in their face and like, you know what I mean? It's like, I can, why are you doing that? They don't know how to push back, you know, the people in the company. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I would push back. And, and over time, the leadership team started to believe that maybe they had some power here and that they could make decisions. And they really started to turn things around to the point where I, uh, with EOS, you have a 90 minute level 10 meeting. And I, so I visited them later on and, and they, they had to drop it down to an hour because they just didn't have any issues to process week to week. Wow. And, and the guy that was going to, you know, find another job. Every time I talked to me, he's in the Caribbean, or he's got, he bought a boat in Saugatuck in Michigan and, you know, they really ran with it. So, so what do you think fundamentally changes in a human being to gain that confidence? You know, I, you're right. It comes from the top. So, you know, yeah. top has to be invested. So say that was a prerequisite. They were invested. What are the next steps that really get people on the bandwagon and get them going in the right direction? You know, I mean, the, the reality is so, you know, and I've worked with a lot of big companies and small companies, and oftentimes the leaders have an insight, have some epiphany that say, I should be more of a servant leader, you know, be, be an evolved leader. And so they begin doing that, right? They begin delegating. And the, the reality is we live in a command control, and I call it a command control submit model. Because you can't do the can't command and control unless people submit. And so you've got all these organizations where the employees are trained to submit. You know that you're in this environment because everybody knows that the only answer if the bosses do this is yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a good company, no is an option, a real option, or some sort of negotiation. Well, what happens is we've all been trained that this is bullshit, right? That this is, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, another program, another program. Oh, yeah. And they don't believe it because it's grounded. It's a grounded assessment. You know, it's like they've been tricked before. You know, if you stand up and, you, and you're vulnerable and people call you stupid, it's like, ooh, yeah, that doesn't work. And so they're like, put them back in the box. And so what happens is the enlightened management has about a year of tolerance of this. Interesting. I didn't know that. They're going to do this. They're going to be generous and really give, you know, they're going to try it. They, I've seen it over here. They'll try it. And they're, but the submit people, it takes a couple of years. Interesting. Before they, yeah. So I think it's two years. And so that's what it turns out with EOS. It, by, by the end of two years, 
it's a transform environment. And it's this constant like you, that you have to prove it over and over because these are people's livelihood in, at stake, you know, and, the, and they've been messed with before. Well, that's the point. Like you say, the fear is endemic, isn't it? Because yeah. like you say, it, they've seen these schemes, you know, like it could be yeah. results.com, it could be EOS, it could be any other flavor that you name, but if they've never had a great experience, then that is going to completely, um, you know, kind of put them down the wrong alley, you know, for sure. And I think that, I think that the interesting thing that you said as well is that, you know, management have to they have to lead, don't they? They have to say, yes. okay, let's get on, but let's make a long-term plan about this. This is going to be two years. And guess what? You know, the little upstart down in the, the shipping office, I want him in this team. I want somebody who can talk differently about things, who can yeah. be the cat among the pigeons. Yeah. Who can upset the apple cart. Because that's the people you want on board. Exactly. And that's the thing. So, I mean, I, I'm always drawn, you know, the people that are – um what do they call them? Malcontents, right? Yeah. Cause like I was the malcontent EDS. I was like, I've two bosses up and they're like the malcontents see something and they're just, they have more tolerance for pain. And you know, the, the reality is it's a difficult process because the visionary of the business the CEO is a very different mind, you know, and in EOS, we use this different terminology, which is based upon the function, not some title, you know, title doesn't help. Yeah. But when you talk about the visionary, you know, the visionary, do do a lot of stuff automatically really well. And they don't understand people that aren't like them. Totally. Right. And then, but all those other people, they don't understand, you know, you talk to, you know, I mean, visionaries were nut jobs. We are nut jobs. You know what I mean? It's like, totally. we, you know, we all have some form of ADD where we get bored with stuff really. So we change things. We come into the office every day with 20 good ideas, 19 of which are not very good, you know, but we're just always excited. So what EOS does is it creates this structure because the CEO doesn't know how to create a structure to give people the guidance that they need to be able to, because they need to know what the box is. They need to know the, the, the criteria under which they can actually just make decisions. You know, they need the specified CEOs. They don't need anything specified. It's all invented every day. Right. But everybody else, they see, well, I need, what, what am I doing? Where am I going? And they're like, well, figure it out. It's like, no, that's not good. So what EOS does is it creates this layer, this contract where the CEO finally says, oh, so, you know, they get frustrated because they tell their vision all the time and nobody knows it. It's like, well, you tell different versions of it and it's really detailed. Well, with the VTO and EOS, you know, what you've got to do is like really figure out what matters most, you know, so you define the job better, right? And then what happens is once you define that job better, the leadership team actually does a better job, a little bit better. And so what happens is the, the CEO then goes like, huh, maybe this can work because they're nervous as hell, right? They don't know, they don't, they can't, it's, it's, it's scary to give up the reins. And so when they give it up and they're working on this problem together and they define it and they, and they take some stuff on, you know, they're like, really? And the guys, yeah, good. And, like, and so there's sort of the self there's, they're reinforcing one another. And so, and then, and then you put a finer point on it. Most CEOs really want people to run with it. They just don't know how to create the structure 
to have people do it because people need guidance. Well, and, and again, you summed that up so well, because really as human beings, we've always had tangible boundaries that we give us safety, right? And you got to remember when you've been brought up, we have a house, we have two parents, exactly. you know, not always, but we have a school, there's a rigid structure and human beings enjoy structure because it gives them a bit of reassurance. Yes. And that's really where you're coming from. If you can put that structure in place and people have some tangible boundaries that they can work within they're going to perform much better at the end of the day. And you can be the visionary till the cows come home, but if you can't put it in practice and give people some sort of structure to work around, it's very difficult to get things implemented, isn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, I mean, visionaries, so, so they do, they move the world, right? They, It's really, that's the new stuff. And so if you've got a company that's visionary led, it's it typically like it has great results and then everything falls apart. And then great results. And then everything falls apart. If you don't have that visionary influence and you just have that integrator, so you got the integrator and the visionary are a pair, they're a team, you know, tight team to the yin to the yang kind of a thing. But if you've got an integrator led business, what you've got is you've got this really nice, steady growth, right? But nothing extraordinary, nothing like that makes you excited. What, what you find when you put a system like EOS in place you get a greater growth because you've got the insights and the brilliance can be impacted. You don't have all the dropping because you've got some stability. And so you've got the straight line, but you change the angle of it. So it's that to me is exciting. You're halfway through listening to On On The Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Kevin Sabolsky. He's the founder and owner of Fastest Route. I next wanted to ask Kevin a little bit about his family life and who influenced him on his journey. Really mom and dad, I think, you know, my mom's very intellectual. She's kind of more the integrator type and my dad is more the visionary type. So, you know, my dad and I didn't have always like a great relationship. We didn't have a bad relationship, but we didn't, we bumped up against each other and, and, and I found him difficult. And I think most visionaries are difficult, right? We're crusty, we're opinionated, we're, you know, outspoken, we're forthright. And, and my dad took that to the limit. He grew up in the upper peninsula in, in Michigan. And so he's, you know, and a brilliant man, very accomplished. And so while we didn't have a great relationship, I think that most of my like most admirable qualities come from him. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, my mom helped me think I'm, I'm very good with words, you know, I'm, I, uh, and so, you know, I still, to this day, if there's some notion or idea that I don't know anything about, I'll call my mom and she'll, and she'll say, oh yeah, well, this is what it is. So she knows everything, <laughs> you know? Uh, so yeah, that, and, and they also, my parents were very hands-off. One of my favorite stories is I would go hang out in fifth grade with my buddy, Eddie Owens. We'd go camping at this pond called Keep Out because there was a sign on the fence. <laughs> I love it. So we called it Keep Out Pond. And that kind of summer, you know, I was a mischievous kid and I played a lot and I was, you know, I would be gone five miles, 10 miles away from home when I was 10. And so, um, you know, thankfully we all, the three of us survived the three kids and, and we, you know, have a measure of independence and creativity and curiosity. 
Yeah, that's a great story. And what did mom and pa do? What did they have jobs? Yeah, my mom was a math teacher. Interesting. Yeah, high school. She's outspoken as well. And, you know, with education is difficult. And I think she's a good teacher, very smart. And she had problems with the administration. And so by the end of her career, she was teaching social studies in middle school. So it was like. <laughs> fair enough. I mean, she found a job, you know, that's fair enough. Yeah, it worked out. My dad, uh, most of his career, he sort of culminated in being a plant manager for a small stamping plant. There are about 100, 150 people providing parts for Ford. And so he was the boss. And so we used to go into the manufacturing plant on the weekends because he was worked all the time. And we'd drive the high lows around and break things. <laughs> she did. Yeah, I get it. But it sounds like quite an interesting life. Like a lot of us led in the kind of 70s and the 80s, you know, we we just got left to go out and, you know, we didn't come home for lunch. You know, yeah. your mum knew that you were out there somewhere. Right. But guess what? You still turned up every day and you yeah. had that freedom, which was amazing. But um, it, but like you said, though, your mum and dad were pretty complimentary by the sounds of things. They yeah. had the different strengths that, that really kind of integrated into you. So from an earlier stage, did you have any dreams about what you wanted to do? I was always an entrepreneur, you know, we'd have a, I had a candy stand. So we didn't do lemonade because, you know, that's just a pity purchase from the parents. In the, in the, <laughs> yes, and they, they just buy one and it's really short lived. But if I've got a, you know, thing of candy, all the neighborhood kids would come and buy. And so it was just a more lucrative, you know, stand out front of the house. I would make, I would make cinnamon sticks and sell them in school. I would make different things and sell them in school. Okay. So, so now you, you're at that stage where you come out of high school, what were your dreams in terms of where you were going in business? Did you have any idea of what your ambitions were? Oh, you know, I think this is one of the things, this is one of the things that's a big issue for me. I, I don't think we do a good job of, of dreaming and, and planning in our world. I, I, you know, I mean, I had ambitious plans that I accomplished by the time I was 32. Oh, incredible. And so it's like, you know, we don't set our sights high enough, I don't think. And we've got this really peculiar situation in the world where, you know, 30 years ago, there was a certain contract between employers and employees. And so, you know, you had a job for life. Pretty much. yeah. And that contract was broken 20 or 30 years ago. And so we gave ourselves to the companies and then they would take care of us. Well, they're not committed to us and our future. We didn't have to have a clear vision of what we are going to accomplish in our lives because it would be taken care of. And so it's, it's just, I don't, I think we don't do a very good, and it's such a big part of what I do with my clients because, you know, I want to know what are you going to accomplish? What's, you know, let's look at 10 years from now. And people are really not that good at it. It's become the sort of a foundation. And a lot of people, they're looking at like what's available in the world, right? Cause that's how we got jobs. And when I was in high school, I don't know that you had the same thing where they, you know, you, you had career day and you filled out the form. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And then they processed it. And what they told me was I should either be a forest ranger or the guy that goes out and changes food out of vending machines. Are you serious? <laughs> I think mine was a retail manager somewhere, which didn't inspire me at all. You know, but, uh, there we are. It doesn't inspire. And I'm like, so we need to inspire. How do we inspire ourselves? And so this has been my thing is like with what matters to you, what fills you with passion. And, and it's, and the reality is we don't know how to do it. And it's a journey. People are frustrated, right? Because they don't, they don't know whether they'll get it. 
right? It's hard to have a big dream because so the way I think of it is like, what, if you're going to make plans, you have to have two parts of your brain. You have to have the dreamer and the skeptic because, you know, we don't want to go off some, some dream that you can't fulfill. The problem is the skeptic in us are this big, strong, you know, part of us. And the dreamer is this tiny little meek part. And we've got to turn that around because the reality is a lot of people think, well, I might not get it. And that, to me, it's just not the point. It's just not the point. I don't, in a way, if I don't get the goals that I've set for myself, it's okay. Because I know that a, that a life in the pursuit of passion is a life of passion. Oh, gosh, yeah. It is. It, it's the journey. It's the journey. It's not the end. And we are so absorbed in the end. But how do you live a brilliant journey? How do you live this brilliant life? It's, it's in the pursuit of it. It's in the pursuit of your passion. And, and, and to me, it is such a great spiritual path for me. I like seekers, right? And like, and that, so I was like, who am I? What do I like? And I don't know how you can really dial into that personal inquiry about who am I? What's the world? What's my place in the world? Without striving to live your dreams. You know, this is something that comes right from the heart, you know, and I can see it in your face as well, that it just makes you so happy. Now, talking about dreams, let's let's segue into what you're doing with your life at the moment, because you did something pretty radical, right? You had this amazing <laughs> business. You then probably had the 2.5 kids, the family home, you know, whatever we, we, we strive after in the North American world. Yeah. And you basically turned everything on its head, bought a camper, and go on the road. What was that all about? I really started to dial in on this with my clients, with solopreneur clients, because I just see it over and over again. You know, I mean, it happened to me, right? It's like I, I had brilliant success in my business. And, and you, you don't have to go very far to find, you know, every, almost everybody that's been in business and has, has some success has this story where it's like, okay, yeah, I was doing really well. And I find I didn't like it. Yeah. And, and it's like, what do you do? I had a client one of the guys that worked for one of my clients, great guy. He, he, he wasn't a fighter. He didn't know, he didn't know how to deal with politics and they just treated him poorly. They replaced him with me. And I'm like, looking at him, I'm like, the guy knows, I mean, he knows everything I'm doing, but they wouldn't listen to him. They treated him poorly. And I, it was just such a horrible environment. And I asked him, you know, why are you doing this? And he said, well, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm getting good money. I'm paying my kid, you know. Two years later, I, I ran into somebody that worked there. And I says, how's Tom doing? And he said, oh, he's dead. Yeah, he, he was he was peddling on and he found he was passed out, brain tumor, cancer, dead in a week. Oh, it's my. like, you can't convince me that wasn't stress. You know what? I mean, I, I have personal stories similar to what you've yeah. just said of somebody who's been in the same situation where... The implemented a scheme, yeah, and I won't name it because obviously it's something that's still current. And um, he had to stay there. He was 25 years at this business and he couldn't afford to lose the pension, the money that he was on, the credibility. And he's the same age as me. And he died last year in August. Cancer. Yeah. And, and, and you think, yeah, if that wasn't stress, you know, I don't know what. And, the you know, there's lots of other factors. Let's be frank about it. But the point being is, is it really, really worth it? Is it really worth it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the thing about it is it's, it's such a poisonous process because, you know, if you're, you're in a place where you're not 
loving what you're doing and you're and and so what happens then is your performance diminishes because who does their best work in jobs they don't love you know working for people they don't care about doing taking care of concerns that don't matter for them doing practices that don't feel good in their body you know you don't do great work you're right and so then what happens you get diminished and you get diminished and i did for a while coaching displaced vps from auto companies that wanted to become entrepreneurs and they had just been trained so poorly right because they're vps they had a thousand people work and they they're really not good but they've been taught that they were good and it's like no 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 you you're never going to succeed as an entrepreneur you've been broken one of the things that i i've been fortunate enough, you know, 20 years ago, I heard the distinction of mood and I've been mood management. And so I've got a program called about self-mastery. I call it mood management because I think with solopreneurs, the biggest strategic challenge is within us. Oh, totally. You know, so, so we're struggling, you know, how do you maintain interest? I had 30 people in my company. And when you got 30 people in your company, everybody's picking up the pieces. And so whatever weaknesses I had, you know, there was someone else. And then I left that behind and just to go and start my own business. And I could just see how my own insides were limiting my capacity. I knew if I could just be confident and all the time and just really maintain this. And the reality is we all live that secret life in our head where it's like, we know the limitations we have, but we don't talk about it. And to me, it's like, no, we need to talk about this stuff because part of what I found is like, there are ways to manage that, right? And everybody's got the ways to manage it. So let's talk about it. So I would do these self-mastery mood management play shops and talk about what do you, what do you do? You know, what do you do when you just can't stand someone? How do you deal with that? Um, resentment. You know, we live in a mood of resentment. I, I had this client that was doing some stuff and he was in this program and he said, so what mood would you say you're in right now? I said, well, yeah, resentment. Okay, yeah, resentment. He said, okay, so so let's, you know, irrespective of what's going on, the resolution to this problem, there's a resolution. What's the likelihood that you're going to figure out and do the things that you need to do to resolve this, to turn it out, if you're in a mood of resentment? No. I'm like, you know, F you, man. It was like, shut up. <laughs> of course not. You know, no, I'm not going to do my best work. I definitely can't. And, and, res and it's an interpretation. It's an interpretation of powerlessness. Really resentment is it's an interpretation that someone else has power over you and, and it's false. You know, it's just a lack of creativity, but when you're in that mood, that's what the world looks like. You're not, we don't think we're in moods because we live in a narrative. We think we're in the moods because the world's like this and it's the right way to be. And it's bullshit. It's not. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. It's a freaking story. And so how do you manage that? How do you manage that? And so one of the most potent stories that we all have is our ambition. What's that narrative of the future situation that I'm committed to produce? If we have a weak narrative about the future, you can't be passionate. Passion is when the actions that you are in, you, are, you have an interpretation that the actions that you're in are going to produce a positive future that you want. And if you never have that story, you can never be in this passionate state. It just informs 
so much of what I do, you know, and those big companies, I couldn't talk about mood that much because they didn't really like that language. And, but it's like, that's the thing that I notice, you know, I'm here with this organization and I'm going to help them define strategy moving forward. And they're all in a mood of despair. When you're in a mood of despair, your peripheral vision physically shrinks. Your ability to think in long horizons of time drops. You can only, you can't think. If I'm in a mood of despair, I don't care about the future because it's like, it's going to go to shit right now. And I need, (laughs) and so you have to get out of a mood of despair. So when I'm in that group and I see they're all in a mood of despair, I, I know that we can't do strategy. There's nothing. So all I can do is say, what's going on? I'm, I'm going to face this mood. So what's this story that you're gripped in that has thrown you into this mood? You, you're so perceptive. I love the way that you approach things because you're feeling what's happening in the room. You, you feel a sense of what's going on. And I've been there before as well, where I've been in a presentation. We're doing three presentations. The first one went swimmingly well. The last one went great. The middle one went to crap. And I'm thinking... What's going on here? And there's three distinct groups from yeah. different parts of the building and three different perceptions and three different narratives. Yes. But the important thing is, and I think you just nailed it 100%, is you've got to listen to the current narrative. You've got to understand what their story is Yes. in order for that to change. Because it, you can't understand them if you don't right. understand their story, their, their journey you know, how did they get here? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've got this uh, thing I call the leadership map that really shows, you know, the, the things that great leaders look at. And so you look at someone's mood, you know, there are a lot of people that are just intuitively great leaders. That was not me necessarily. I had to learn. And so I'll ask them, what it is, what is it that you do? You know, and they'll so tell me their story. It's like, no, I think what you do is you observe the mood that people are in. You recognize that they need to be in a different mood and you listen to them to uncover the narratives that shape their reality and you offer a different equally true interpretation of reality that enables a different possibility and it's magical it shifts people's moods instantly oh yeah and there's like this skill to that so when i'm talking to people what i'm i'm like what's the mood and then it's like okay so if they're in a mood of resentment i know that they have an interpretation, someone has power over them and they are powerless, that other person's doing something. And so I know this, right? Resentment, that is the narrative. And so I'll be asking, so what's going on? You know, who's doing what? What's, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And why can't you get that done? And, and who's preventing that, you know? And then there's a way around it, but not if you're gripped in the mood. You know, you talk so much to where I come from and what I understand and the feeling of narrative. And I really key into that. It's something that's quite natural for me. And what you summed up as well, which was really lovely, is that you can change that narrative very, very slightly and still get people on that same track. Yeah. And they think, okay, it's okay. I can run with this. This is good. He's understood what I want to do and he's going to help me facilitate it. There might be one extra turn in the junction, but we're still going to get there. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to give people hope, haven't you? You've got to get on their terms, right? So you have to understand what are they concerned about? The most powerful thing that I think I figured out as a leader is with all of my people, I would spend time with them, personal one-on-one time out to lunch, you know, where I'm their resource. And what I'm working on is their ambition. I'd ask you, what do you want out of your life? We haven't developed it. They're not developed stories. So they're not big. They're not interesting. And, And I would look at them and I'd say, you know what I see? Because I've, I've seen more, right? 
so I would say, I think you could do this because I think you do this. I think you're good at that. And so just sharing those assessments and then say, you could do this. And I think you would love that. Would you love that? And they would go like, wow, yeah, I would love that. And I'd say, I want to help you do that. So this is what we're going to do. What do you think is the biggest gap that's preventing you from having that? And we'd figure out what's that gap. So how can we put you in a situation in the company where you can learn that? Love it. And then when we're in the middle of something and something breaks down, there's a problem. And I can go to them and I can say, yeah, the customer's really upset. Now, most people would say, and that's going to affect our goals and our revenue or something, my thing. And I, that's not what I would do. I would say, so your gap is like sales failure. What do you think you need to do? Because if you don't figure that out, you're probably not going to get that ambition that you want, are you? And they're like, yeah, right. And so they're like trapped. Where can they go? Where can they go that anyone's going to give that to them? I mean, I'd have people that I want to start my own business. I'd be like, awesome. I'm going to help you do that. Oh, there you are. Okay. Before we run out of time, we've got to get to people in contact with you, Kevin. So what's the best way of getting a hold of you? Yeah. Email Kevin at Sabosky.com. That's the easy, that's the easy email. Perfect. Yeah. And you're also on LinkedIn as well. So people can search you out there. And Sabosky is S-U-B-O-S-K-I. Is yeah, that correct? it's a great name. Yeah, you're not going to find a, a lot of those. No, so. that's true. It's very true. Very unique. Listen, I, we could do another podcast because I think all the things that you're talking about are so practical and so pragmatic. It, it sounds as if you're a real facilitator at the end of the day. You're somebody who can really get people on the right line as long as they can just open their heart, their mind, and have a little bit of passion in there and, and entertain the unusual, the out-of-field yeah. people. If they're willing. Yeah, they got to be willing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I got one final question. I'm, I'm sorry to kind of curtail you because this is a great conversation, but I want you to just leave some thoughts for our listeners. And I always ask this question. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Mm. Yeah, it's that. Um, you know, when you're 18, you don't know what you're capable of. And it's a, it's a, it's a shame, you know, I mean, I, I would, I would love to go back and say, you know, you're capable of so much and, and life's long, you know what I mean? That's the thing that you don't know. Uh, I, I think Dan Sullivan says, we're always disappointed in that we can't get enough done in a year, but it's always amazing what we get done in 10 years. Oh yeah. And so, you know, raise the roof, man, do more, you know, what could you do more? That's what I want to say. Yeah. And don't look back. <laughs> don't look back. Yeah. It's like, it's, <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, I was just going through in my mind, you know, because I know the weaknesses, right. And I could tell you what the weaknesses are, but I don't have to, if you've got some passion for a future, you're going to have to work all that shit out anyway. Of course. And so you don't have, I don't have to tell him about that. So if I just get him, you know, spun up about what he could do in his life, then all of these things that I know of all my weaknesses, you know, you're going to have to figure those out and you're going to want to. It, well, that's the point. And if you give people momentum, it's amazing where that can carry them and how many people they can take along for that journey. It's, it's just wonderful. Yeah. Kevin Sabersky, I want to just thank you so much for your insights. It's been very inspirational. And I, I so appreciate you coming on on the track and I, I wish you the best of luck in your business. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity and take care. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. Mm-hmm.
My guest this week was Kevin Sabolsky of Fastest Route LLC, giving you the right roadmap to accomplish and achieve all your goals. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Music